All right. For our third segment, we're going to talk to an old friend who has uh, spoken about political matters mostly in the past, but uh, like the host of this program, he's also a physician. I'd like to say welcome back to Radio Parallax, Dr. Gary Aguilar. Thank you very much, Doug. It's very good to be back. I appreciate your uh, having me on. Well, it's you know we should as doc, as a couple of doctors we do need to talk about medicine once in a while I guess. <laughs> uh, not a bad idea. <laughs> now uh, you've had a very harrowing experience of late, uh, and we need to we've talked about um, the fact that well there's been kind of a resurgence of whooping cough all across the country, partly inspired by the fact that a few knuckleheads out there have gotten people to stop doing immunizations. But be that as it may, it's making a resurgence, and you were one of its victims. Let's, let's talk about that. Uh, indeed, I was, and uh, it wasn't lately. It happened about three and a half years ago, almost four years ago now, actually. I, you know, uh, came down with what struck me as sort of a mild upper, upper respiratory tract infection, a uh, little muscle aches and pains, uh, uh, you know, a little bit of a fever, felt kind of punk and achy, um, and uh, as it turned out, uh, it was right at the beginning of the summer when we were, I was going on vacation with my family to Mexico, they were going to be gone for three weeks. I could only afford to be gone for two weeks. Uh, this started a week before they left. I was going to work a week and then fly down and join them. So they were there while I had a little bit of a, you know, a cough and that sort of thing. And, uh, and then they left. And when they left, I began noticing that you know, my muscle aches and pains went away. My fever went away. But now the cough began really ratcheting up. Um, it's described in the literature as a paroxysmal cough. You are overcome with paroxysms of coughing that are entirely beyond your ability to control them. Um, uh, and when, of course, this happened, uh, I knew that I'd already been vaccinated as a child. I had no reason to suspect it would be anything strange like this. Uh, so immediately I thought, well, I must you know, have some kind of a lung tumor. So I went over and got a chest X-ray, clear as a bell, uh, you know, all my other lab parameters, absolutely fine. Uh, nothing going on, but the cough began getting worse and worse and worse. What's described in the literature as a 100-day cough proved, in my case, to have been a 120-day cough. Ouch. Uh, and uh, I can remember, oh, you know, five, four or five weeks into it, I began tapering. It's slow tapering because I was then down from a peak of about 50 of these paroxysmal episodes of coughing per day, per day down to about 25. And again, uh, the coughing would, would, would be so severe, you, you literally cannot take a breath. And, 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 and no one you know, knew. I, I talked to my internist. He, no, it must just be a bad cough or cold. And then it was only when I happened to accidentally stumble on it, and I thought to myself, what about whooping cough? I got out my old Cecil and Loeb textbook, read the description, and I went, my God, mein Gott, that's what I've got. And then I began Googling around to realize that uh, it, it turns out, and the literature supports the fact, the medical literature supports the fact, that immunity from the disease may last as little as 25 years. So somebody who got immunized as a child could be at risk again as early as the age of 30 or so. Now, for the vast majority of people who get it, there's two uh, you know, groups, and of course, you've touched on the one, and that is kids who have not been vaccinated because their you know, parents are worried about the you know mercury in the vaccine or some other thing that they feel might be neurotoxic uh, or lead to some other dread disease but but uh, this is a very terrible disease and it kills a lot of kids uh, i mean i don't know what the numbers are 
but there's a resurgence of whooping cough now going on, not only uh, among children, but adults. What they're telling us is that if you've got a cough lasting two or three weeks, you need to think whooping cough. And of course, uh, you, you are an eye surgeon, not necessarily in the frontline trenches of, of people with infections, but of course, people are passing through your office. And, and like any doctor or any healthcare professional, you're, you're more exposed than, than others. Uh, that's uh, certainly the case. But, you know, in, in public situations, you know, it's being passed around in the adult community. I've been making it a bit of, of, uh, of my own duty to remind patients, particularly older patients, to just make certain that when they get vaccinated for other things, including hoopy zoster, shingles, that is, um, you know, and this is probably anyone above the age of 50, uh, maybe even younger than that, but certainly uh, the age of 50, uh, also get a, a DPT vaccine, get a booster shot, because you're at risk uh, uh, at any time, and, and believe me, it left me with what uh, I call an exercise-induced type of asthma. I'd never had asthma in my life. Um, in consequence of the whooping cough, uh, I would find myself, you know, because I like to run, uh, I'd come back from a run with my chest very, very tight, and all of a sudden uh, wheezing on exhale, which is, you know, one of the signs of asthma, as um, listeners who have the disease or have family members of the disease will know, you wheeze on exhale. Uh, and after a cold or a flu, I'll get a kick up of the asthma. Now, now into my fourth year, uh, I've had to use inhalers, uh, almost none at all. I think it's slowly going away, but it is a Jeez. very crippling disease. We should mention, uh, too, that people uh, know that when they get a tetanus shot, they may know that they often throw in diphtheria with it, too. The ER or your doc may give you a TD, which kind of gives you a little booster for your diphtheria, but they don't include the pertussis with this in the old DPT. So if we want to get immunized, we're going to have to go out and do that specially. Right, and I just just encourage your uh, listeners to Google up uh, whooping cough pertussis, because this year marks uh, and and we heard a presentation at the community advisory committee meeting in, in San Francisco at St. Francis Memorial Hospital. Uh, they had someone come around from uh, 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 the local uh, San Francisco uh, health community, warning us of the spike that we were expecting this year in whooping cough cases because it spikes every five years. And indeed, uh, if you Google around, you'll find that there has been a huge spike in, in, in reported cases of whooping cough. And the problem is, if you track these uh, cases, that they, the spikes do occur every five years for complicated epidemiological reasons. Uh, but the uh, spikes have been go every five years, we, the spikes have been getting higher and higher and higher. And between spikes, the number of reported cases has been getting higher and higher and higher because there isn't the full appreciation of this disease that there ought to be. It can be a killing disease both of children and adults. Um, and believe me, you do not want to sacrifice three or four months of your life uh, <laughs> to being woken up in the middle of the night convinced that you are going to die almost any minute because you cannot get your breath. Well, Gary, we appreciate this update very much. It's the middle of August. It's not such a big concern as it might be other times of the year. When it comes to be fall and we're back in the cold and flu season, we'll come back and give people a little reminder on this very topic. I, I hope that you will. I hope you reach a lot of people, and I, and I hope that somebody actually gets the vaccine and has saved the disease because uh, they will be very lucky not to have had it. All right. Thank Gary, you, Doug. thanks again. And we'd also refer you to an excellent article by Carrie Peyton Dahlberg in the Sacramento Bee from last June 27th about to the booster shot for whooping cough, and we will, as promised, return to this topic uh, in the fall. And it changed the subject rather dramatically. We mentioned uh, a week or two ago about some bonehead effort to install casinos in Cairns, Australia. We don't want to forget to mention that there are some uh, domestic efforts much closer to home along the same uh, boneheaded line. 
How about the proposed $1.2 billion redevelopment of the old Point Molade Naval Fuel Depot in Richmond? Apparently a, uh, a tribe which is referred to as the Guildville Band of Pomo Indians is going to challenge the No Urban Casinos edict of Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger. And uh, I guess see if they continue to fool the public that casinos are a great deal for, uh, for communities. How are we going to allow a cluster of people who apparently live in Ukiah, 70 miles north of Richmond, to come down and build a casino in the Bay Area is just beyond me. Well, actually, no, it isn't really. I know the reason. It's money. But, you know, money isn't everything. Sometimes you have to do the right thing. And personally, I have a hard time seeing how putting Junior's college fund into a one-armed bandit or losing one's retirement at the blackjack tables can turn out to be too good of an idea. I want to note in the next couple of weeks, we're going to hope to bring back Mary Roach to talk about her new book, Packing for Mars. We very much enjoyed talking to Mary about her book, Bonk, The Curious Coupling of Science and Sex, when she spoke here at UC Davis and mentioned in passing that her next book would be about uh, how humans might need to uh, make some arrangements to go off to Mars. We just thought, well, that kind of topic bears the same relationship to this program as, I would say, candy does to babies. That's going to be fun. In the time we have remaining, let's talk a little bit about asteroids. We are all in favor of going to Mars. But to do that, we'll have to meet some goals uh, that sort of are intermediate steps, I guess you might say. And it turns out the moon really isn't one of those. It makes more sense to go to an asteroid. It's just easier than going to the moon in many respects. And might actually turn out to be a lot more practical. Because when you have that much raw material out there in space, you might be able to work it into something useful. But New Scientist magazine noted that uh, while this is a sensible goal in many respects, it does have a certain number of problems uh, as well. Not the least of which is the fact that all asteroids are out there spinning. And if you want to land on one and work with one, you're going to have to match the spin, which sometimes is quite a trick. Now, NASA has managed this in the past. We actually put a spacecraft down on the asteroid Eros a couple years back, as you'll recall. The spacecraft was not specifically designed to do a landing, but the designers figured they could get away with it, and they did. Unfortunately, they were not able to continue broadcasting from the surface of the asteroid, because if they tried to design that capacity into the craft, I'm sure that uh, the higher-ups of NASA would have put the kibosh on that idea. But there are asteroids in our future, I think it's uh, fair to say. And, uh, by the way, the European Space Agency has a spacecraft that's going out um, with a planned visit to a comet. On July 10th, it whipped by uh, the asteroid Letetia and sent back to Earth the first close-up images of that body. Turns out it's a much bigger asteroid than any we visited before. And we refer you to a very curious montage by Emily Lakdawalla of the Planetary Society, which you can find on the Internet, which was pretty cool. And I believe we mentioned in passing last January that uh, astronomers were puzzled by uh, what they think may have been the first observed asteroid collision. The automated linear sky patrol picked this object up on January 6th, and it was the first, it was assumed, and at first it was assumed to be a small comet. But uh, with further inspection, it turned out that it's following a very circular orbit in the asteroid belt, but just had developed a streaming tail behind it. 
In fact, the emissions of dust off the object had a strange X-shaped appearance to it, quite different from the normal smooth envelopes of normal comets. The object also appeared to lack the, uh, the gas, which is usually found in a comet's tail, leading scientists to speculate that it appears that a couple of small asteroids had collided a few weeks or months earlier and uh, spewed debris behind them for quite a while. And we talked earlier in the program about uh, the odds of things. The Week sounded off on that in its July 2nd issue, made an assessment of the odds of uh, several different developments, including a nuclear exchange, asteroid collision, cloning of a human, and a polar meltdown. The polar meltdown was described as likely. The odds of cloning a human were described as likely. Luckily for humanity, the odds of a nuclear exchange were described as unlikely, as were the odds of a significant asteroid collision. The magazine notes that we can expect that in the next 200 years, a small space rock will burst into our atmosphere with enough force to devastate a small city. That's if it blows up above a small city. NASA classifies any asteroid or comet that comes within 195 million kilometers as a near-Earth object. We currently think that of the estimated 1,100 of such objects out there of one kilometer or more, we found 85% thanks to things like that uh, linear sky patrol we mentioned earlier. Those would be real disasters, but researchers now know that uh, an object 30 to 50 meters across would be a city killer, comparable to the airburst that took place in Siberia in 1908, an event that flattened an area the size of London. This also approximates the size of the object that dug out the famous meteor crater in Arizona, just as the one in Siberia blew up before it got to the ground. Apparently just wasn't as dense as the object that hit Arizona, which was very dense indeed. I've got a chunk of it in my house, and it's, uh, it's as heavy as a big chunk of iron. It's as heavy as a chunk of iron, because it is a chunk of iron. Let's talk about stuff other than disasters to end the program. I would like to cite the column by humorist Gene Weingarten. He may not quite live up to the... <laughs> Dave Barry standards of humor, but uh, Gene does hit an occasional home run like this one, which he described as another installment in my Pulitzer Prize winning coverage of the plight of the beleaguered customer service representative, the Oral-B Dental Floss Company. Me, I like your product very much and admire its tensile strength. I was wondering how many feet of floss there are in each pack. Paul, let me check. Uh, 55 yards. Me, wow, 10 stories, more than enough. Um, I was just wondering, how many strands of it would you need to braid together to support the weight of a six-foot-tall man of muscular build? Paul, I have no idea, but I think maybe 15. It's pretty strong stuff and kind of braided already. Me, oh, great. Paul, um, why would you, me, see, I have this friend. He's currently incarcerated. Hypothetically, he might need to lower himself from a great height. Paul, silence me. So, Oral-B recommends 15 packages then for this application of your product. <laughs> Paul, silence me. Don't worry. It's okay, because I was framed. I mean, I mean, I mean, my friend was framed. All right, and final bit of humor or non-humor, depending how you look at it, comes from Harper's Magazine. They examined the transcripts of the Federal Open Market Committee meetings back in 2004. And doesn't that sound like a fun thing to do? But the magazine noted that these transcripts showed that officials had privately expressed concern about real estate speculation. Remember, these got laughs, these lines. 
said one guy, I must admit it was disappointing to come to work last Thursday and find out that our forecast had a half-life shorter than a jar of mayonnaise in the Mojave. Sure, that got a laugh. How about, we're into the realm of unfamiliar economics, a realm that we have visited often since I've been on the board. How about, if I might say so, it sounds absurd on the surface, and it sounds absurd beneath the surface as well. Another one. I muse that if the Red Sox could come from behind to beat the Yankees and then sweep the World Series, wasn't it possible for the staff one day to get the near-term employment forecast right? And my personal favorite, and actually this one is sort of funny, said one speaker, Rule 1. Stick with your forecast as long as possible. Rule 2. When your forecast becomes untenable, make a new forecast. Rule 3. Know when to switch from Rule 1 to rule two. All right. Our thanks to Ngai Obilam, Dr. Gary Aguilar, and our old pal, Will Durst. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett, and I'll see you next week at the same time. Well, I hope so anyway. I'll be here. Hope you will be too. Money, 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 money